Hey everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast, which is now the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. This year, the IASC is hosting a series of virtual conferences, and each of these has a different theme, including the Knowledge Commons, Urban Commons, and the Water Commons. You can find more information about each of these at the IASC website, iasc.commons.org. At the podcast, we are interviewing some of the organizers for each of these conferences, and these are appearing under our Commoning Episodes series. We are also working with the Open Access International Journal of the Commons, or IJC. In a recent episode, we interviewed the editors of IJC, Frank von Lerhoven, Mike Schoon, and Sergio Villamayor Tomas. You can listen to that episode to learn more about the journal and about our plans to collaborate with them later this year. In this episode of the Incoming Podcast, I spoke with Joshua Stoll. Joshua is a professor of marine policy in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. As you'll hear, Josh is from Maine and cares deeply about the fate of the fisheries sector there. And this is also the topic of his research. We talked about Maine fisheries as well as the Maine aquaculture sector and the relationship between them. This is the In Common Podcast. So do you live in Orono, Josh? No, I live in a little town called Etna, which is about 30 minutes outside of Orono. Okay, so you're out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you like it like that? uh, I love it. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, I'm from rural Maine. Okay, that was like my next question, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I moved out of Maine for eight and a half years and lived in other places um, before coming back. And um, before moving back to Maine, I was in D.C. And I've spent time in San Diego and, and other cities um, since then. And um, I didn't know what it was going to feel like to move back to a rural place. And... It has felt very natural, um, but there's something really tragic about it too. Um, Many people, kind of like your reaction, was like, oh, like, is that something that you, do you like it? Do you, you, like, is that really what you want to be doing? And Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a stigma about rural living. And I've had many friends say, wow, you've got a really cool setup. We wouldn't do that. Right. Okay. And, and our rural places are, are really depressed. I mean, yeah. I live in a town with one business. It's a gas station that doesn't serve gas. And the school got uh, consolidated. So we don't have a middle school anymore. And, you know, like, there, there's something really sad about what has happened to rural places. Uh, and mm. yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I wonder about the future <laughs> of our rural places, given, this, given kind of the state of the, the world right now and, and sort of this rural-urban tension that is, is pretty real um, and mm. in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, where in Maine are you from? I'm from down east. I'm from a, a town called Harrington. Okay. Um, and uh, it is a rural fishing place. Um, my, my parents were back to the Landers. Um, we lived in an intentional community down there. Uh, and, uh, and then I spent time in, in Portland. So did growing up um, in an intentional community and it was in a fishing village or near a fishing village? Yeah. I mean, did that influence what you're doing now or is it just some big cosmic coincidence that you now study fisheries related topics it's it's a thousand percent connected Mm. my work is really driven by a a deep sense of um, responsibility to be doing work that addresses coastal community resilience, and especially in rural places. Um, Mm. I think um, 
the way that fisheries have been structured around the world, but, but in Maine and in the US has um, created haves and have nots. Um, and often sort of the most vulnerable and most marginalized communities are not, are not part of the, the equation. Can you talk more about that, Josh, actually? Like how do you see the system having exacerbated inequity? Yeah, there's, there are so many ways that we see this playing out. Um, the, probably the, the most clear example in my mind is around how ocean space has been reimagined and the sort of perpetual enclosure of ocean space from sort of commons to quasi-private resources. And we're seeing this in a lot of different spaces right now. Uh, we see this in wild capture fisheries, we see it in aquaculture, it fits into the, the discussion around wind energy and leases for oil and gas. Um, in fisheries in particular, which is an area that I've spent most of my time thinking about, over the last several decades, we have progressively moved more and more towards modes of, um, of management that are based on, <clears throat> really based on um, the privatization of the resource through cat shares and individual transferable quota. And that doesn't work for people who don't have access to resources, that don't have access to capital, that don't have access to certain types of education. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this sort of progressive march towards fewer and fewer people holding the access to those resources. Right. And, and so I've heard this critique of the individual transferable quota system, the ITQ system. I mean, it's, it's in part the transferable bit that's it's problematic in a lot of these critiques. It's because once you make these um, fishing permits tradable, that's going to lead to market consolidation and you're going to kind of squeeze out the smaller folks that can't afford to stay in the system. And I've also heard of stories where you end up having um, a lot of the rights owned by um, external actors that don't have a real stake in the system. So you have local folks being really alienated from the resources that they had been depending on. Is that the kind of critique that you're thinking of or referring to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am not aware of a fishery in the world that has transferable rights that has not led to consolidation in some form. Right. And I mean, it reminds me, sorry, go ahead, Josh. Well, I, I think it's also important to recognize that it's not just happening in fisheries. It's, it's also happening in aquaculture. And I think here in Maine, we see that in a really interesting way. I have a hard time distinguishing between what is aquaculture and what is wild capture fisheries. And if you want, we can go there. I really do want to go there. <laughs> in Maine, by law, we don't allow transferability of licenses. For aquaculture? No, for, for wild capture fisheries. Okay. Okay. That has played a critical role in preserving the small scale nature of our fisheries, including the lobster fishery, which is- Which is the most famous one. The most famous one. But across the board, we don't allow transferability. Interesting. Aquaculture, we do allow transferability. And so how does that play out differently? Well, there's of course, there's tons of variables, right, to think about, but if you just look at from a transferability perspective, we have our most valuable fishery is the lobster fishery. It's $500 million a year, something like that. There are something between four and 6,000 people who participate in that fishery as licensed. Mm -hmm. Our second most valuable marine resource 
in Maine is salmon. Salmon is aquaculture. It started out being pitched as a way to diversify the marine economy and as a tool for marine resource users, for fishermen to get into and diversify their livelihoods. It is now owned by a single company. It's actually not based in the U.S. And this relates to the, one of the papers you shared with me, right, in marine policy, where you were looking at um, the relationships between fishers um, and the extent of their involvement in the aquaculture sector. And my reading from the paper is, it, is you know, the main conclusion is that the, the, the wild, wild capture fishers are not, are not involved in aquaculture here. There's not a lot of overlap between folks who own fishing rights and folks who own aquaculture rights. And I also think we need to be cognizant of, so there's a couple of things that I want to also clarify here conceptually. Um, when we talk about, I think when we talk about a, uh, um, a property right in terms of a wild capture fishery, we're talking about a right to access and extract. Um, I think it's less obvious to some people what we mean by um, a right in the aquaculture space. And so if we could clarify that, I think that would also help. Like what, what is tradable here in the aquaculture sector? Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there, but in the most sort of simple sense, when we talk about transferability in, in the aquaculture space, we're talking about the privileges to use space. So in Maine, you can get a license or a lease to access a particular area, a specifically you know, sort of demarcated space in, in the water or intertidal zone, that can be transferred. And, and an interesting thing is those are, are those leases, um, until a couple of years ago, they were for 10 years, and then you had to renew them. They just became extended, so now they're made for 20 years. And so it's a pretty permanent transfer. Right. 20 years is a long time to give somebody yep. <laughs> privileges. And, and those can be traded and sold. Um, and so you can consolidate them by people buying those privileges. Mm -hmm. And so that's the predictable has happened in some sense, it sounds like in Maine, in that transferability has led to consolidation. And I mean, when you talk, when you mentioned, Josh, that this is you know, generalizable beyond the fisheries sector, um, it really resonated with me because you know, when I used to do a lot of field work out West, I was engaging with a lot of farmers who were worried about the transferability of their water rights. Mm. And there's even a, a saying out West that water flows uphill to money, <laughs> right? Because you have this system where and, it, you know, I should say, because it's um, not known by lots of people, that still the great majority of water in the Western U.S. is still used by ag. It's like 70, 80 percent. But there has been a trend for a lot of that water to be. And historically, this is what happened. This is what has happened in the West is that we've the reason we have like these big cities is that we've um, taken water where it used to be and put it in put it where it wasn't. Um, so I think this, this issue of transferability and the consolidation, I mean, this is really a conversation about markets generally, almost, because you're creating a market in a particular right. And this is a concern we always have about markets is when someone talks about the efficiency of markets, you know, I always kind of hear a couple of things. And one of the things I hear is by efficiency, we partly mean the ability of folks with money to satisfy the needs and wants that they have insofar as they can express those needs and wants in well-articulated markets. Like that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is where it comes back to rural communities and just sort of unevenness of this space. There's a certain lexicon of, of being able to play in that space. You, you need to know that language. You need to have access to the tools to play. And when right. you're creating a system that has not been that system, for decades and saying, oh, we're gonna make this pivot, but we're not gonna tool those people who are participating with the skill sets, the knowledge, the, the theory behind that. Right. What do you think is gonna happen? Right. Yeah, you, just, you can't just expect that if you create this new opportunity in your mind that people are just gonna naturally flow to it as if by gravity.
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so a couple other questions to follow up on stuff you've already said, Josh. You mentioned um, cat shares and, and ITQs kind of in the same sentence. And um, I have been more familiar with ITQs for a while. And I think some listeners would appreciate you also clarifying, like, what's the relationship between those? Like, what is a cat share versus an ITQ? Are these the same? Are they different? Yeah. So um, I, when I use the term cat share, I'm referring to sort of an umbrella term for um, uh, a type of instrument that is used to uh, uh, a way to allocate privileges to individuals. And they can be transferable, but they can be non-transferable. The um, shares, basically. The sh yeah, yeah, the shares of the resource. Um, yeah, and so ITQs are a specific flavor of okay. that share. So in New England, we have, in the groundfish fisheries, you know, we have something called a sector program. It requires groups of fishermen to come together to pool their fishing privileges. That's not an individual transferable quota because it's not allocated to an individual. It's allocated to groups of, of people. I still would consider that a catcher. Right. Okay. And rights can be traded and, and between groups. Between groups. And has that happened? Absolutely. Um, mm. We have uh, what are referred to as slipper skippers. Those are people who have quota access to the resource and they don't fish. They sit on their couch, if you will, and lease that out to other fishermen with some kind of rent associated with it. We also have people who say, I can't make, given the allocation that, that I was allocated, the initial allocation, I, I can't make a living doing this. And so they sell their, their privileges to other people. Um, the groundfish fishery has, in New England, has consolidated tremendously. And the, currently the, the largest quota holder is a private equity firm. Um, Again, with without roots in England. And is this is the is it worth mentioning this character, the Codfather? I know that this is it's. I didn't go into this interview planning on mentioning this person, Josh. It's, but I'm now thinking about it in terms of consolidation. And I, I remember some conversation um, on a Zoom call I was on with you that. Um, so there's this this new company that's come in. Is that like in the vacuum created by the prosecution of the Codfather or am I just misconstruing that story? No, that's, that's right. Um, okay. So there is this character, Carlos Rafael, who was indicted on multiple accounts of, of illegal behavior. He was the largest quota holder in the groundfish fishery in New England. When that happened, there was a lot of debate about what would happen to those, to that quota. And would he have the ability to sell those? He was banned from fishing. So the question was, would, would he be able to sell those or would the government take them back and reallocate them? Right. He was given the opportunity to sell them and that quota was sold to a private equity firm. Okay. And when we talk about, um, I hope you'll bear with me with all these like, conceptual clarifications, but like when we talk about a quota, and earlier I mentioned the idea that like a fishing right here is a right to like access a part of a fishery and extract, but you know, there's more to it than that too, right? Because there are, the rights are specific to certain species. Right. So yeah. this sector system, is it correct that when it, when it gives a certain amount of rights to a group of fishers, um, is it a, a like diff, a, you know, so many lobster can be caught, so many cod can be caught. I mean, these are really different quantities of rights for different species that the, that the sector group has. So cat share systems that or quota based systems are, are really founded on the idea that we can know or that we do know what a sustainable amount of harvest should be. For a species. For a given species. And yeah. so we can say, 
well, there's X number out there. Based on recruitment, based on all these variables, we think you can take half of those. And so that becomes the, the quota for a species. And brownfish fishery is made up of something like 15 different species. And each one of those has a total allowable catch associated with that, so a total quota. And so in the sector program specifically, groups of fishermen are given on an annual basis a proportion of that total allowable catch. Right, okay. So it's, it's really based on proportions rather than a, and a definitive number, a discrete number. Which is presumably good because that's adjusting for the amount that we think we can catch in a given year. Yes. One of the challenges and one of the critiques of the system is that we know what that right number is. Right. And we know that marine systems are highly complex. There's spatial structure to them. We have climate change that's kind of throwing a wrench into things. What we knew before doesn't apply to what we know now. And so that creates a risk to say, even if you say scientifically we can target level X, doesn't actually mean, in fact, we can't. And this has been one of the challenges in the groundfish fishery, where there's this sort of chronic history in the fishery where decisions have been made to fish at a certain level. And then in, re in retrospect, you look back and say, mm, that actually wasn't the right level. Right. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that in New England fisheries, generally, there's a, like a long history of conflict between scientists slash bureaucrats and the fishers. And a lot of it turns exactly on this point of how many fish are out there, how much can be caught. And it, um, it seems more recently, it's the governmental actors that have been saying, we need to catch less, and the fish are saying we can catch more. I feel like it, I'm trying to remember this time, maybe it's in like in the Canadian fisheries and like the Nova Scotia where there was actually, it kind of flipped and the fishers were um, perceiving more scarcity than the bureaucrats and scientists were. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, there's some, there's some uh, important literature that's been written by Finlayson, I think, and, and others in, in the Canadian context about inshore marine resource users, fishermen saying something is going on. We, we, need, we need to do something different. And that was before the cod collapse in, in, in right. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think what you're saying is, is right. I don't know about today, whether all fishermen are saying, let's just keep fishing. Yeah. I think it's pretty varied, and I think it was yeah. too. I think offshore, the offshore fleet was saying, "Yeah, it's fine. We're we're good to go." Um, and I think, and this is this is kind of a this is an interesting thread, right? Like we often treat fishermen as this sort of homogenous group of actors in space, and yet there's quite a bit of heterogeneity. And one of the interesting things about how we manage fisheries in the U.S is we often don't attend to that diversity. Right. So isn't that sector separation to say, oh, there's this small scale fleet, there's this large scale fleet. Like, what is their relationship? Like, how are they, how, how is access changing? How is use changing? Like, where are they participating in these fisheries? And is this distinction that you just mentioned, Josh, between large and small scale, does that map onto the distinction between inshore versus offshore or nearshore versus offshore fishers? I mean, are the, are the near shore smaller scale, the larger, are these bigger boats? Yeah, typically it, um, there, I think there, there are a lot of components of, of these two sectors, but yeah, I think typically you have sm a smaller scale fleet that's closer to shore and they're closer to the communities where they reside, right? Mm -hmm. That's the sort of roving through space approach that a larger, more capitalized fleet can do, right? Like the bigger boats can go further. You can, you don't need to be tethered to the community where you're from. Right. And that's, I'm reminded of, I think it's like this 2006 Ficker Berkey's article about roving bandage, banditry and fisheries based on the concept of think originally from Mansur Olson. Yeah. 
And it's exactly that, that because of the capitalization and the mobility that results from it, you decouple the state of the resource from the livelihoods of these long scale fleets because they can just go on to the next resource. And so when we, so this sounds like one initial important way to distinguish between different types of fishers is that look like there's, there's, there's really some heterogeneity here and part of it relates to where they fish and how capitalized they are. Absolutely. And I, I think this is a blind spot. I mean, in, in the way that we manage, manage fisheries, so much of the focus has been on the at sea activity, how many fish are coming out of the water? What is their length? What is their weight? Like very little relative to the, the sort of stock assessment side of the equation has been invested in understanding the human dimensions of fisheries. Right. We're sort of chronically under invested in that. And by making, by having a, uh, a really fuzzy picture of what those what that heterogeneity looks like, I think we've lost it. We've lost the heterogeneity? Yeah, in a pretty big way. What, so, and what you mean by that is we've mostly lost the smaller scale fishers near, near shore? Yeah. Okay. The sector program, Josh, is that entirely governing near shore activities or is it near shore and offshore? It's both. So both. The, the initial vision for the sector program and some of the sort of um, key players in that space who were envisioning what it might look like, imagined it as being spatial. And so you would have a spatial set of sectors that were close to shore and you have a, a, another set of sectors that were offshore. That, that never, that didn't have political uh, support. And okay. so we lost that. And it's interesting, as, as you know, we, we've been doing this set of interviews with people in the industry and lots of people look back and say, that was a mistake. We really needed to create uh, a firewall between inshore and offshore, and we did. Okay, a firewall by um, assigning spatial property rights basically via these sectors. Yeah, more like a turf. Um, Territorial user rights fisheries, is that right? Yeah, where you give people particular areas to participate. Right. How old is the sector system? 2010, the current system was created. 2004, okay. version of it was established. And what agency or agencies um, are in charge of implementing it? It's, it's the National Marine Fisheries Service mm -hmm. that is responsible for managing those, the, it's the regional council, the New England Council. Right. These, there are these one. regional councils distributed throughout the country. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the part of the, the, the brilliance of the way we managed fisheries and designing our federal fisheries management is that we, we, we created these three sort of key nodes in the system. We created science centers that did the science. We created regional offices that did the management and regulation. And then we created these quasi-government groups made of made up of industry participants called councils. And the council's job is to come up with sort of the idea. So long as it fit within the national standards that we have. You could decide how to manage any way you want. And you passed it over to the regional offices to come up with the implementing regulations. Got it. Part of the problem, I would say, with that system is that it's at such a coarse spatial scale that, that we lose a lot of the complexity of the system. So even though we've regionalized the governance system, we kind of haven't regionalized it enough. I would argue that. Okay. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you remember or know Robin Alden, but she is a, is a brilliant mind. She, um, she was the commissioner of the Maine Department of Marine Resources and then worked for a long time for something that's now called the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. 
one of the things that I will always remember, she, she served on the New England Council. Her saying is that when she first arrived in the council, she felt like she knew everything about Maine fisheries and like what was happening. And then suddenly you, you come into this regional scale and you have no idea what you're talking about because there are so many fisheries and it's such a large geographic scale and you don't know the, like the, the regional nuance and, and you're the ones responsible for coming up with plans. Mm. It's a bunch of people who can't possibly understand what's going on with a lot of authority. Right. I mean, this is kind of one of the critiques of centralized governance. Yeah, interesting. So Josh, you mentioned the lobster fishery um, earlier on, and this is, um, at least in my world, the most famous, I mean, the cod fishery is also pretty well known. Um, the most famous uh, fishery, community-based fishery in New England, you know, there's the, the lobster gangs of Maine with really like these harbor gangs, right? And the story of how sustainable this fishery is, you mentioned how economically significant it is for Maine. And then, so in, during my graduate education, and this was put forward um, to me as one of like the examples of like how this can be done. And then uh, Bob Stenick. So I also read a book, by the way, last year called The Secret Life of Lobsters. Of course, I can't remember the author's name. It's so hard to remember author's names, but it was, it was fascinating. And the scientist actually, Robert, Robert Stenick, features prominently in the book. And I've never met him, but I did read an article that he published uh, um, characterizing the lobster fishery as a gilded trap. And it really read to some extent like a critique you might level at aquaculture or agriculture, that it's actually, you know, that it's a monoculture, it's heavily input dependent, it's based on subsidies, et cetera. And I've never really known what, how to like square the circle in terms of my own feelings about this fishery. So I was wondering whether you had any thoughts on that and also how this kind of maybe one of the most robust local governance systems um, in the state is doing, given that we started this conversation by you talking about how you, you've got this impression slash motivation there's, that there's a lot of social deterioration going on in the sector. So, you know, what are your feelings and opinions about the, the lobster fishery in these ways? Well, let me, um frame my comments by starting with, um, I had the opportunity to, to spend a little time in Sweden. And when I was leaving Sweden, uh, my colleagues gave me this beautiful poster of the Maine lobster fishery. It's all in Swedish, so I actually can't read it, but they translated it. Um, and this was in, I think it was made in the, the early 2000s or sometime around then. And basically what it said is, this has been a really successful fishery for all these reasons that people have talked about for a long time, but it's on the brink of collapse. And I share that with you because basically since that poster was made, Maine's lobster fishery has experienced what is essentially exponential growth. In other words, the opposite of collapse. Okay. So, uh, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to anticipate what will happen um, because a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me have been quite wrong. Um, but having said that, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that the fishery is under extraordinary pressure right now from a lot of different drivers of change. We have climate change that's warming the Gulf of Maine rapidly. We have issues with entanglement with right whales that has the potential to dramatically reshape the way that gear is deployed in the fishery and could also open the door for conversations about consolidation of the fleet or transferability in the fleet. We've had issues with 
trade wars and geopolitical politics that have interfered with the fishery. Um, we're in the midst of an ongoing pandemic. There are a lot of different factors that are putting pressure on a governance structure um, that has been and has been held up for a long time as this global model of, of good governance. Um, there's a lot of different things to unpack there. I think for me, one of the, the in, there's a couple of takeaways for me. So one, I think it's important for us to recognize that the lobster fishery has not always been what it is today. We are ultra dependent on that single fishery in Maine, but historically that hasn't been the case. The, the industry, the fishing industry has been much more diversified and it hasn't been more than 20 years or so that we have been sort of all in on lobster. Um, and so that may change in the, in the future and we may not be all in on lobster in the future, but it still may exist as a, as a, a part of the marine resource use. Is a part of that story, Josh, um, this, I've heard this argument that with the collapse of the cod fishery, so cod fish are predators and predated on lobster. And so when you remove this predator that actually makes, you know, that opens up the, the ecology for the lobster to grow more. I mean, is. Yeah, th there are, I'm not an ecologist, but there are um, five or six or eight or 10 hypotheses about what has led to the boom in lobster. And one of those is, is around the loss of predator fish. We also, um, there's a hypothesis around as the Gulf of Maine has warmed, the, the ideal envelope, temperature envelope um, has increased. And so therefore there's more habitat for lobster to exist, which has led to the increase. Um, I think it's also important, um, we were talking about aquaculture earlier and you sort of referenced this in, your, um, in your, your comment or your question. Like we also contribute a huge amount of bait to the fishery. And so it's a very sub, like uh, nutrient subsidized fishery. Um, and there's been some really interesting work on like what part of the diet is bait in the, lo in, in the lobster fishery. Like what proportion? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think there's a, there are a lot of different factors and I, um, I don't know what exactly it is. I would guess it's probably a combination of, of many different factors and, and a lot of different um, uh, biological and, and socioeconomic things at play. Um, one thing that I think is really worth noting when it comes to sort of the sustainability of institutions and, and governance regimes is, is that the fishery has become increasingly globalized. And there is uh, an interesting body of literature around like the impacts that sort of global connectivity has on local resources and resource users. And I think there's something about that as well. Um, mm. There's a lot of talk about how fast the Gulf of Maine has increased in temperature. We could also look at that from a trade perspective and we've seen even more rapid expansion of global trade. We now get a large portion of our bait that we use from international, from trade itself. So like the, the fishery has gone from being emblematic of Maine to being almost emblematic of the world, right? right. Now a truly global fishery. Okay, you're right. There was a lot to unpack there. Um, so getting back to aquaculture, you so there is a transition occurring from well, at least to aquaculture. Mm -hmm. But do you, are there any success stories there? I mean, what is your view of the promise of aquaculture? particularly in the state of Maine, um, because there is some of this social and ecological deterioration that I think we hear about. Um, do you think that aquaculture has the potential to um, diversify livelihoods 
um, offer alternative livelihoods to these fishers that they can they can transition to. I, I feel like there's not um, as much like social science literature on aquaculture as there is on like wild catch fisheries. Um, so is this a is this a space that you're hoping to move into in your in your own work a bit more? Yeah. Um, I guess there's there's a couple pieces of 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 your question. So you 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 started by asking, does it have potential? Yeah. To, to be um, to contribute to well-being and to livelihoods and things like that. And um, I think I could answer that emphatically both ways. Hell yeah, and also hell hell no. I, oh, I, okay. I. I think it comes down to governance and aquaculture, this question of aquaculture for whom. If we aren't simultaneously developing coherent governance strategies that are tied to particular societal outcomes and values that, that we as a society care about, we're not gonna get there by accident. And my sense right now, if you read the blue economy literature and you look at blue food discussion, it is really strongly focused on the potential. And everyone has sort of had a sip of this, this um, aquaculture Kool-Aid and really sees this as a solution to our conservation challenges to feeding the world and then there's often a footnote about governance oh yeah right. by the way we'll have to get that right yeah but i don't think it's an add-on i think there needs to be a real deep investment in the institutional design the, the governance piece of this while we are doing the development because you don't undo a system. That is much harder to say, well, we created this giant outcome. Let's actually do it the other way. Right. I think that's how we've done fisheries, wild capture fisheries. And right. Not, like going in after the fact and trying to re remedy things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you think there is a lot of potential. I saw in one of the other papers that you shared with me this critique of the discourse on the blue economy as being kind of excessively growth oriented. I mean, it does smack of um, a kind of technocratic or technical solution the way we pejoratively use the term in the field um, as a way of punting on politically thorny processes like governance, right? So it's easier to say, oh, well, we've got the solution. We don't need to really worry about how we socially organize ourselves to make sure that we're meeting our values when we're doing it which is, is kind of the recipe for um, like the exclusion of local communities as you're observing. Right. I, I think there is this idea that, that aquaculture can meet the needs of coastal communities by creating jobs, by helping to conserve wild resources, by supporting livelihoods and well-being. And that is driving a huge amount of investment in developing the sector. Um, I think the intent is there. I think that the, there is this, this desire to do aquaculture for good. Right. Um, but at the same time, there are efforts to thwart visioning efforts, and there is resistance and I think maybe some hubris in thinking we just don't need it. it there's, there's no need to develop a, a sector or to develop governance of a sector that, that ha hasn't grown up yet. And, and I just don't think that's going to play out very well. Right. 
Yeah. Um, so you, but you, your answer to one question was hell yeah, which was you think there's potential. And the answer to the second question is hell no, which I think that question was, are you going to move into this space in your own work? Is that the question you were answering then? No, I was, I was answering, is, does it, I was answering the potential question. Oh. I, I think it has a lot of potential to do good, but it needs to be coupled with governance. Right. Okay. And, and yeah, and that's the piece that I, as somebody who cares deeply about rural coastal communities, that's the piece that, that keeps me up at night. It gives me heartburn. Uh, right. And, um, and am I, am I moving in that direction in, in my work? Um, this comes back to how do you define aquaculture and, and I'm, I don't have a particular interest in aquaculture. I have a particular interest in rural livelihoods and rural communities and, and sustainability of these communities and aquaculture happens to be part of that discussion right now. Okay. Um, but I, I don't see a strong difference or big difference between wild capture and aquaculture. Yeah. You mentioned that earlier that you kind of saw a fuzzy boundary and I still think I'm not quite understanding why you feel that way. I think in, in the popular imagination, they feel quite different. Yeah. And in, um, I feel like the discourses about them are a little bit different. So could you say more about why you think that they're yeah. not as distinguishable as, as many of us think? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, and I, I recognize this is not how everyone thinks about it. I think you're right about that. Um, when it comes to the differences between aquaculture and wild capture fisheries, I think that line is really tenuous. And it's really a spectrum of seafood production. Um, to give you a couple examples, um, I have an oyster farm. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not. Uh, I started it in 2014 because I was interested in a conversation about aquaculture governance. Uh, and as a way to learn, I, a lot of my work has a participatory bent to it. Um, and the oysters that, that I grow are grown in cages out in the marine environment. And they feed, I don't feed them. So they are feeding on what is out in the water, 100%. Um, and so there's an ecological link between what I'm growing right. and the marine environment. To say that I'm growing oysters is not really true. The environment is growing oysters. And I find that somewhat tenuous. Got Let it. me give you another example. Scallops are an emerging aquaculture sector in Maine and globally. Um, the way that you grow scallops is you put out spat collectors and you catch baby scallops, then you put them on lines, and then you grow them out. The way you grow mussels in the wild is to take uh, lines, put them in the water, and let spats settle on the lines, and you grow them out. Why is that aquaculture when the mussel harvester is going out and catching mussels when they're grown up versus when they're small. The lobster fishery, we use 100,000 metric tons of bait every year to feed lobster. Is that wild capture or is that aquaculture? Yeah, fair enough, I'm getting it. Fishery by fishery by fishery by fishery. And the links become so blurry. Our maybe third or fourth largest fishery is Atlantic herring. All of that, that's a wild capture fishery, but all of that goes to feed lo lobster as bait. So is, is that a fishery or is just, is that? Like, right, what is that? What is that? <laughs> okay. and, it, and it becomes really fuzzy. And right. 
think we have this black and white idea that there's aquaculture and there's wild capture fisheries when in fact they are in, intensely interconnected. The only difference is how we govern them. You can transfer your privileges for aquaculture and in Maine you can't for wild capture fisheries. Interesting. Do you know why there is that difference in Maine? Like what the, the I would have, I would have, if someone had asked me like, are these going to be the same or are they going to be different? I would have said they're probably going to be the same. That if they're transferable in one sector, they're probably going to be transferable in the other. Was there a logic behind that difference? It's because aquaculture is different than wild capture fisheries. Fair enough. But, but yeah, but that's where I think it becomes, becomes confusing because I don't actually think they're that different. Okay. I don't, I don't know why. I, I, I think it's this perception that these are two different sectors. Right. Okay. And there's, then there's also some probably just not understanding how it works. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd love to talk a bit more about your work. And I'm aware that you founded and have been heavily involved in this organization, Local Catch, um, which has a nice website, localcatch.org. I think I found out about this through the folks at Coastal uh, Roots Radio um, out of the University of Guelph. Um, I, I think they're involved in this as well, somehow. Could you um, talk to us about what this organization is doing, why you founded it, and what your goals are? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, thanks for bringing it up. Um, and um, I, uh, I uh, really uh, have enjoyed working with the Coastal Routes folks. Um, they're awesome. Um, so the Local Catch Network um, was created in 2011. And um, the focus of the network has been on reimagining seafood not as a commodity but as a source of local and regional food um, so much seafood is is among the most globally traded commodities in the world um, and we often forget that it's also critically important to coastal economies to food systems to people's livelihoods to well-being blah 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 and I had the privilege of working with a group of fishermen in North Carolina to start a co-op and to help them develop a business arrangement to connect fishermen directly to consumers through something called a community-supported fishery, a lot like the community-supported agriculture model. Okay, interesting. And that work ended up gaining a lot of attention and people from all over reached out to say, how do we do this in our, in our community? And it, and it wasn't about how do we get North Carolina seafood in our, our community? It was about how do, we, how do we develop community approaches to seafood distribution um, that connect people to their source of seafood? And so that was the source for the Local Catch Network, um, where we... Um, uh, became a community of practice of people engaged in local and direct seafood marketing. Um, and now the network has a couple hundred people who, a couple hundred seafood businesses that are part of the network, as well as tons of researchers and academics and uh, government people who are thinking about seafood as, as local food. Wow, that's incredible. It's been a fun and interesting adventure. Okay, how does it relate to your, your research or, or does it, or is it kind of a separate thing entirely or? Uh, it, it completely relates to my work. Uh, I mentioned I started an oyster farm, been working on developing this, this network for 10 plus, 10 years now. Um, my work leads with community engagement and collaboration and doing on the ground participatory activities. And it's through that engagement 
and that learning at sort of close range and by participating that a lot of my research questions emerge. And that has, that has really set my research agenda, whether it's starting an oyster farm and participating in the governance process or helping to build this international network. I've had the opportunity to, to hear what people are concerned about, what they're thinking about, and then use that to inform my research. Okay. I'm like a backwards academic. Oh, maybe that's the best kind. I start with the engagement and then that goes to research rather than tacking on some outreach at the end. Yeah, well, particularly when we put it like that, which I don't think is an unfair way to put it a lot of the time, I totally agree with you. One of the things that I've struggled with um, as an academic, I'm, I'm not someone who was like 24 and decided I need to be Professor Professorson or something. It was very much a, a windy road. And I've always felt that it's important for academics to, I mean, if this is a well-trodden critical path of exhorting us all to get out of the RP tower, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so digging a bit more into your work, Josh, you're, you're currently at the University of Maine in Orono, correct? Yes. And you also got your PhD there. Yes. So um, was your PhD work about Maine fisheries? Yeah, it was about licensing. Okay. And how the licensing structure has enabled and disabled people's access to the resource. Got it. Were you yeah. looking at like um, equity implications of this specifically? Um, in, in part, um, my, my advisor was Jim Wilson, uh, who's a complex uh, uh, economist gone rogue and, and a complexity person um, who, who then retired. And um, uh, yeah, so there are elements of equity baked into the research, um, but uh, I, I came at it from a resilience perspective. What, okay. what is the, the simplification of the system mean for coastal communities' long-term resilience? Okay, do you engage with the Resilience Alliance folks or, or no? Yeah, I did a, um, I've done a couple short stints there and- um, Oh, you were in Sweden, you mentioned. Yeah. Worked with, with Beatrice Krona. Oh yeah, okay. That's yeah, a good gang. They are amazing. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I got involved in the Resilience Alliance like, I don't know, 12 years ago and it's just been, it's been wonderful. It's a really like inspirational group of people. Yeah, they do, they do really important work. Um, so what do you call yourself, Josh? Do you call yourself something, an environmental social scientist? It sounds um, like we're in the kind of ethnographic space a little bit here. We're also talking complexity, resilience. This is the question that I, I don't think I'll ever be able to answer. Um, You're an oyster farmer slash fisher. That's right. Yeah. Um, I really struggle with this question. Mm. Uh, my master's advisor, Lisa Campbell. At Duke. Yeah, at Duke, she's a political ecologist. My PhD advisor was an economist, but not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I went and worked with Beatrice Krona, who I think is an ecologist by training, but not. Uh, you know, I, I am of a generation, I think, of, of emerging scientists who are somewhat interdisciplinary. And mm -hmm. uh, I use qualitative methods, I use quantitative methods. Um, I'm driven by a deep interest in solutions to the challenges that coastal communities face. And mm -hmm. that really what has guided my work. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for me to say what, what I am. I've tried on sustainability scientists, I've tried on environmental scientists, environmental social scientists. I don't know. You have a good, you have a good term for me? 
Oh, uh, I mean, I, I use environmental social scientist for myself because it's like the least offensive to, I don't, know, I don't know who I'm worrying about offending, maybe just my own sensibilities. I can't think of a better one. It's not very satisfying. It feels too like multisyllabic to me. No, I mean, I, th- I, I ask this of most of our guests because most of our guests are like you, right? Like there's, there's kind of a passion um, related to sometimes personal experience and a set of research questions that they want to answer. And then they kind of go about trying to figure out how they can answer those questions. Yeah, but we don't have a good like label for it. And I think some people um, have struggled with that because it makes it harder to kind of box yourself and make yourself legible to people that aren't going to, you know, listen to an hour and 15 minute long interview. Yeah. Um, but so before we do end then, Josh, I'd love to also, um, I'd love to conclude our conversation with uh, a, a short discussion of what you're doing now and kind of where you'd like to go in, uh, with your work in the future. So I know that you're involved um, with this project with the Conservation Law Foundation. You're doing more interviews with some local fishers. Um, we don't have to talk about that if that's like not what you want to dedicate the final part of our talk with, talk about. Um, so with respect to that project or more generally, like what are you focused on now that's got you really excited? Yeah, so um, I, I could maybe flag two things. Um, the, the first is, is with the lobster industry here in, here in Maine. Um, and it's a collaboration with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, a collaboration with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, um, with uh, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, DMR. Yeah, so there's a sort of cast of characters. Um, and it's around developing sort of social indicators for the lobster fishery. So Maine has three or four biological surveys they do of the resource itself of the fishery itself and so in that way it's it's sort of this cadillac of monitoring we do and then there's really very little information about what's going on on the human side Um, and so we just launched a a two-year project um, looking to develop a set of, of social indicators to better understand how the industry is doing, um, both paying attention to geography, so different parts of the coast, as well as inshore and offshore. Um, so I'm really interested in that work. I think it has, I think it's important work for the state, but I think it also, and this is what really gets me excited about it, has the, the potential for me to, to develop what I hope is 30 years of engagement with the industry. Um, and that's the part that, that really matters to me. Um, and then the, the second part of the work is continuing to think about seafood as food. Um, through the work that I've been doing at the Local Catch Network, um, I think the pandemic has really made the broader public, as well as policymakers, think about food differently. And it's created this really unique opportunity to bring attention to who are the ones bringing food to our tables. And you know, it comes back to these questions, these broader questions of, of access that I really deeply care about. Mm. Uh, so we have a, a, a new project that launched a couple months ago. Um, uh, that's funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture to grow, to continue to grow the network, um, and that um, through technical assistance, but also the opportunity to study the development of the network itself, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, one of the things that I that resonates with me here, Josh, is your kind of long-term dedication to a site. I mean, you're from coastal Maine. Um, this feels like it's kind of been in your blood for a very long time. Yeah, I, I, I have been amazed at how projects stay with you. Mm. Like, 
that is really exciting to me to be able to build off of relationships and insights that yeah they continue to accumulate and there's so much to do in that space and yeah where you've seen that in your, your own work and, and and your own teaching and, and those things as well and and that to me is is like richly exciting to say like we're building something we're learning about the system we're we're contributing to to real to real solutions like i'm not doing yeah. if we're not like i'm, I'm out <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it's i think an admirable departure from um I don't know if it's a more dominant practice, but the practice of like parachute extractive research where you go into a place, you get your data and then you leave. This is, feels like kind of the opposite of that, which I think is where we need to be squarely. I have thought a lot about that. Like it takes longer to produce research outputs. Uh, relationships really matter mm -hmm. and require sustaining. Um, and it's hard not to look around to peers and be like, wow, like look at how productive people are being and, it, and it's hard it's hard to know if this is the right or worthwhile way to go but it's the way i'm going thanks for listening everyone the income and podcast is produced by myself stefan partolo and courtney hemmen wagner we are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can go to your local podcasting app and to our website, incommonpodcast.org. There you will also find our blog and a link to our Patreon account that you can use to give us a small donation to help us cover operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at incommonpod.org.